Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, where we bring you stories that delve into the science and spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. This week is episode 59. This week we're going to talk Volstate. What is Volstate, you ask? Volstate is one of the craziest races in the world. It's a race across the state of Tennessee, 500 kilometers, 314 miles. You could either do it crude, by having a crew, a van, a vehicle, a trailer driving in front of you and helping you, helping you out, or you could do it screwed. Um, you could do it on your own accord, stopping at convenience stores and eating at a dumpster. Um, it's the craziest race uh, put on, no doubt, no doubtly, by Lazarus Lake. And it was put on about three weeks ago. Now, state, the Tennessee State Legislature issues an official proclamation issuing the winner of all state, King of the Road. And this week, we have King Bob Hearn on the call today. Now, Bob didn't just race Vol State and win. He raced it crude and er, screwed, sorry, and, and won. He did the whole damn thing on his own after the previous year doing it crude. Um, he not only did that, he destroyed the both crude and screwed course record. It was held by Greg Armstrong, the legendary Greg Armstrong. Uh, by and he, he beat the course record by three hours, running 314 miles in three, three days, four hours and nine minutes. Now, just think about that for a second. Three days, four hours and nine minutes to run 314 miles across the state of Tennessee. Now, I recommend all of you listeners to go back and view or listen to episode 32, find out a little bit more about Bob. Um, he is most, he's the most intelligent uh, ultra runner I've ever met. In fact, his, his episode 32 was called the most, yeah, the most intellectual man in ultra running of her. But uh, after hearing the stories from this year's Vol State, I'd have to say that self-transcendence, enlightenment and spirituality kind of drove him to win and maybe to his greatest result ever. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, Bob. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Joe. Good yeah, to be back. Welcome back. Yeah. Wow. We didn't realize we were going to get you back so fast, but yeah. you know, we keep on putting up performances like this. We're going to use a weekly guest, I think. No doubt. Uh, this is this is a hard one because it's a little bit like, you know, where are so many questions? Where do you start? Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, it would be good just if you can, because you've done this race before, for the listener who doesn't, you know, Dave did a good introduction, but tell us a little bit more about Vol State what it entails when we say run across the state, you know, do you have a map? Is it, you know, like on side roads, main roads, up, down, just first describe a little bit of the course and what you're going to go through. And then how as a screwed runner, meaning no support, how one goes about that before we get into how the race went. Sure. So the race actually covers five states. It starts in oh. Missouri, runs through Kentucky, Tennessee, um, Georgia or Alabama and Georgia. Most of the, the bulk of it is, is in Tennessee. Um, you actually start, um, you go to Hickman, Kentucky and get on the ferry, take the ferry over to Dorena Landing, Missouri. And then that's where the race officially starts. Laz lights a cigarette, you get back on the ferry, cross over to Kentucky, run 10 miles through Kentucky, a bunch of miles through Tennessee and a few miles in Alabama and just a couple miles in, in Georgia. And, um, the race has been going on for about 40 years, actually. Wow. Um, the current course, as, as it's run now, I think this was the 17th year, and it's gotten, the race has gotten a lot more popular about the last 10, 12 years, I think. It used to be um, just this sort of, uh, you know, not exactly secret, but just a handful of people would, would do it to, to test themselves. Um, and it's just sort of snowballed the last few years. And now, so it's gotten to the point where registration fills up immediately. This year for the first time, or actually for next year, they're going to a lottery, looks like, for, for entrance. Because um, there's just, there's only, Laz says that basically the course can only support so many people. There's the hotels the night before the race. There's the buses that take you from the finish to the start to show you the course. But there's also just the impact on the local businesses as runners come through towns. So... 
the race runs uh, mostly on back roads, sort of, you know, not interstates, but um, minor highways and back roads through, through little towns. It goes through, I want to say, I may have this wrong, I think 11 counties, and it's routed by every single county courthouse as you go through the towns where the courthouses are. That's a little quirk of the race. Um, there's no official aid stations. Um, so there's really no official support on the course, except that if you decide you can't continue, you call and they'll send a meat wagon to pick you up and take you to the finish. That's really the only official support there is. Um, unofficially, because the race has gotten so popular, um, there's a lot of locals that are aware of the race and its history, and they come out to support the runners and set up what are called road angel stations. And some of these have gotten quite um, substantial. And so they're almost like you can just say, oh, there's gonna be this aid station here, but there's just, just a couple of those. And even those, um, for the leaders, they may not be set up. So you can't, you can't ever really rely on the road angels. You gotta be, you either have crew that supplies all your needs or the more traditional way to run it is screwed when you're, it's just a totally self-supported journey and you're carrying all the gear that you need, resupplying when you can in the towns uh, during the day. And at night, you gotta, you gotta figure that out on your own. So that's sort of the, the basics. There's a 10 day cutoff which means um, you know you got to run 50k a day, basically, or walk 50k a day. A lot of people walk it, um, and so that opens it up to a lot of people who are not necessarily you know like your top multi-day runners. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much anyone who is committed enough and you know is in decent physical shape there's a good chance they can push themselves through it. And it might not be fun. <laughs> Almost certainly parts of it will not be fun, but it will be probably transformative. And generally for anybody who does this race, it seems to be transformative. Just two more logistics. Do you have a map as to where where, where do you make your turns? You yes, there, there's an official um, GPX that you can get. In the old days, You know, there was a paper map and instructions. John Price has written a book um, that has turn-by-turn directions and lists of where the hotels and food stops and things are. And um, these days, I use the course GPX. I put it on my Garmin Phoenix and put it in mapping mode and just looked at my wrist, told me where to turn. So um, that that made that aspect of it. Um, you know, it, it's not um, orienteering like Barkley. Okay. And then flat or hilly or all of the above? Um, well, it's a road race. Um, it's not flat, but it's not super hilly. There's two big climbs and in between lots of rolling, but it's not super. I think this what 14, 15,000 feet of gain over the whole course. So not extreme, certainly for 300 miles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Bob, you know, how many participants, um, you know, normally enter the race and, 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 and as well too, another question to answer that at the same time is, is, you know, at the start line, um, you know, at the beginning of, of the race, what's the energy like? What's the feel of the participants? So I th- believe it's capped at 120 people, 100 mm-hmm. screwed uh-huh. slots and 20 crewed slots. Um, the last couple of years, last year was COVID. This year, there's a little bit of a COVID impact as well. International people were, you know, couldn't get here. So I think we had 106 starters this year. Um, and again, that's way up from just 10 years ago. Um, the mood at the start is there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of... Um, anxiety probably for most of the people because for most of the almost everybody who's doing this will this will be by far the longest that they've ever run and um again the majority of people do it screwed so they're signing on to a big test and a big challenge and a big adventure but there's a lot of camaraderie there's a lot of mutual support and um yeah it's a it's a good it's a good mood so you start the race with the mindset that, you know, I've done this before, right? Because I think you did it at yep. least last year, if not a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Uh, and, you know, you know that what the sort of course record is for this. What, what's your mindset going in? Is this, you know, Bob's going to give it his best effort, break the record? What are you thinking? It's a little complicated. Um, I mentioned at the end of our last interview, we sort of touched on this, as I recall, talking about more sort of spiritual side of running this this race for me last year unlocked a lot of things um 
after the race, not so much during, but after the race, I realized that um, my mind was just in this very different space. I, I, would, I would go so far as to call it an enlightenment experience, actually, and it lasted a few days. And um, really coming back this year, you know, last year I had a good race. I ran three days, 12 hours um, with a crew, and that was the fourth best time ever. The best was Greg Armstrong's three days, seven hours. Um, and so I had to think, especially because last year I wasn't really trained for the race. I jumped in at the last minute because the dome was canceled. I wasn't trained for heat or hills mm -hmm. or any of or the humidity in July in Tennessee, any of that. And I still had a good race. So I kind of had, to, you know, was thinking, well, I need to come back next year and go for that course record. So I was thinking that a lot of the year and I was going to be racing Greg because Greg was in the race. Well, Greg withdrew because he had a mission trip to Africa and also he just didn't have the training and I sort of gradually began to think you know I can do this as this ego thing trying to get this course record but I'm just going to be running by myself mm -hmm. um, you know not with other runners and not really getting the full experience um, or I can try to you know emphasize more the spiritual aspect of this thing and take a step back from my ego uh, sign on to do it screwed instead of crude and forget about that course record and just go out there and um, obviously learn the lessons that I can from my experience last year, run a good race to the best of my ability, but not get hung up on the specific numbers and just, just, you know, enjoy the experience more. So that was the mindset that I had. Um, but then Greg actually re-entered the race just a week before the race started because his trip to Africa was canceled. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I don't have the miles on my leg, but I feel strong. So let's see what happens. So then the race with Greg was sort of back on, wow. um, but, but we were both running screwed. So there's also the screwed record to look at. There's the crude record was three days, seven hours. The screwed record, three days, 14 hours, which is two hours slower than I ran it last year. But then I had a crew last year. So hard to really say, you know, at the start of the race, I was just thinking, um, I'm just going to run under control. I'm probably going to start a little faster than last year. Cause I think I was a little too conservative and it cost me at the end. Um, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to get hung up on numbers and splits. I'm just going to run comfortably and what I feel is appropriate based on my experience and what, what the course gives me. Now I will say the, the weather forecast looked pretty good heading in. It looked to be a fair amount cooler than last year, um, more rain, which um, as long as you can handle that on your feet um, is fast running conditions here. So I was thinking mm -hmm. maybe, you know, conditions are going to yield something that's going to be a fast performance. We're just going to have to see what happens. But I wasn't, I wasn't hung up on the numbers this time. Mm -hmm. And so we're earlier on in the event, um, when it came to you know, you know, racing, um, Greg, because, you know, let's talk, let's, let's just, you know, let's back up for a second and let's tell our audience a little bit more about Greg Armstrong. So when it comes to ego and, and different personalities and looking at people, when I look at Greg Armstrong, he looks like a slender Hulk Hogan. He, the guy is like, uh, he's ripped. He's always running topless. He's when I, whenever, whenever I run with the guy, I think there's no way in hell anybody could ever beat this guy because he's, he's Mr. Mr. America. Like mm -hmm. he's, he's, yep. he's the man. And so, so earlier on in the race, did you take off from the start line and say, you know what, this race begins from, from the first step and let's, let's go out hard or, or, or did you, no. did you, did you end up pulling it back a little bit? I expected that, you know, probably I would have a good race with Greg, but that would be the second half. Cause I know that he likes to start faster than I do. I was not gonna, I was not gonna push it. Certainly mm -hmm. I was gonna go out faster than I did last year. But, you know, there was a lead pack of us that went out. Greg was in front. Nobody wanted to be in front of Greg. Um, There's a half a dozen of us or so. But gradually, I fell farther and farther back because I'm, you know, I was doing a run walk from the beginning. And um, it was reasonably cool in the, you know, when we started at 730 in the morning. And I think people were taking advantage of that and just getting some some miles in the bank. And um, I was taking it a little little easier. And uh, I also planned a nap every afternoon, even the first afternoon. So, um, but I could look at my numbers from last year and see that, you know, even if I took it pretty easy, I could probably do 
you'll know at least the first day do better than last year. Now I had a very good second half of my race last year that would be hard to match, but um, I was just going to start a little faster and um, not worry about Greg until a couple days in. Mm-hmm. So you're carrying a, a backpack or a vest with all your stuff in it. Yeah, that was new. You know, I, I mostly focus on, you know, these 24 hour and multi-day fixed time races that are on short loops where you have the luxury of not having to carry anything. Basically, you can have your crew set up to just hand you bottles when you need them. And um, so that was a new thing. But when I decided, when I committed, I hemmed and hawed and about a month, month and a half out from the race is when I finally said, okay, I'm going to run this thing screwed um, and just write off this record attempt. Then I really started focusing on gear and investigating different pack mm-hmm. options. Um, I was really starting from square zero. <laughs> no, I didn't have any idea how big a pack, you know, how much, the biggest question really is how much water to carry. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, you run through places at night and there's nothing open and there might or might not be some road angels set up or like, you know, a church where you can go use the hose and refill your bottles. And so there's a little bit of a game there of, um, you know, how conservative do you want to be in terms of your water needs and how much water do you want to carry? So anyway, for like a month before the race, I trained pretty much every day in this pack Hmm. loaded the way that I expect it expected it would be loaded during the race, optimizing everything that I was going to carry and running with that, that weight and balance and, and so forth. So I got, yeah, I got very used to that. And now just your pacing, what would your run walk pacing be? Like what would your targets for the two? Sorry, I, I meaning like were you trying to get a nine minute, ten minute pace when you're running, and what would be your walking pace that you were trying to get at on both of them? I wasn't focusing on either of those. I was focusing on my average moving pace. Okay. Which last year, my plan um, for most of the running segments was um, what is it four and a half miles an hour, which is thirteen twenty average pace. And this year, I thought I'll go a little faster, and I'd penciled in. Uh, five miles an hour, so 12 minute pace. Um, and I figured early, I'd probably be ahead of that. And I think my first 17 miles from the start to Union City is where I first stopped was like 10 and a half minute pace average. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell you right now how much of that is running and how much is walking. I'm try- actually trying to extract that from my GPX data because I'm curious. Um, mm-hmm. But it was a run walk. Yeah. And the run was, you know, nine, 10 minute pace. And the walk was maybe 14 minute pace, something yep. like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Bob, you, you, you mentioned road angels, um, you know, yeah. can you explain to our guests what, what or our, our listeners, what, um, what, what a road angel is? That's basically Tennessee native hospitality. Hmm. People who say, oh, these guys are coming out here to go 300 miles and I'm going to come out here and help them because I want to contribute and be a good neighbor and a good citizen and they'll come mm-hmm. they might just set a cooler out full full of drinks and snacks um they might some of them are more elaborate though tents and chairs and fans and um they want to come out and support the runners because they value what what we're doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then with and the angels, a lot of the time I, i've been told by greg and, and other you know front front uh, front end runners is a lot of them aren't really set up by the time that the lead runners get through because nobody really expects you yeah. guys to come through that fast. But did you That's run into true. that problem? Yep, especially this year because I was, you know, ahead of the course record. Mm-hmm. Um, two of the the more established road angels, I, I arrived there and I saw, oh, there's a setup after all. And I went and I signed the log book and I opened the cooler and the cooler is empty. So they just mm-hmm. hadn't, mm-hmm. hadn't quite finished setting up because obviously you know, no one is going to be there that early. And if they were that early, they would be crude. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But that's a more general concern is the leaders, you know, the people farther back in the pack, there's lots and lots of road angels for the leaders, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's start. So day one, you get off, you know, let the rabbits run a little bit faster. You make it through your first, you know, rest stop or station. Now you have the rest of the day to go. Tell us a little bit more about how it evolved town to town. How did you take a break? You know, what was it like in that day one? Well, the first thing I had to learn was sort of the mechanics of the 
you know, convenience store stops, which is your bread and butter, right? You run until you get to a little town and you, you go to hit a convenience store and you get water, Gatorade, Coke, candy bars, whatever. And then you go and you shuffle the fluids into, you know, I had a bottle with two, a vest with two um, bottles in the front. So I, you know, shuffle the fluids into that and have a leftover bottle I shoved into the back. And I had really no idea how long this was going to take um, per stop. And so when I had played with the numbers in my spreadsheet, I thought I'd be conservative and say, oh, 15 minutes to stop because, you know, I, who knows what you'll need to do, mess with your feet, put on sunscreen, I don't know. But my first stop was, I think, four and a half minutes. And I realized, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe I can make up some time here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was slower than that, especially if you get ice, you know, you get a cup of ice and it's all like frozen together and you got to break it up and put it in your pack. And, you know, sometimes it would be closer to 10 minutes, but um, rarely longer than that. So I got into that routine. Um, day wore on and it actually, you know, started cool, but then it got pretty hot by about 30 miles in. Mm -hmm. I had just caught up to um, Alan Abs and uh, Bev Anderson Abs, two of the two of the favorites also running screwed and um, looked like they were out of water. They were like poking around the side of a church to look for water or something and mm. passed them right before Martin. And then um, next 10 miles, Martin to Dresden were a pretty tough part of the day for me because I was getting really hot and um, day was warming up. And, you know, one thing is you can look at the crude versus screwed experience purely in terms of overhead, right? The, the crew... You don't, you know, I, I wouldn't have had to spend those five minutes in that convenience store if I had a crew, they could have done that for me. Mm -hmm. They could have just handed me new stuff, right? But it's mm -hmm. more than that, because especially if it's hot and clear, you know, last year there were times when my crew would hit every two miles, sometimes every mile and, and shove ice into my shirt and my hat and my sleeves, and it would all be melted another mile or two right? That's something you just can't do, period, running mm -hmm. screwed. You get yeah. some ice, it'll last you a mile. Well, there's, you got to wait another 10 miles to <laughs> your next opportunity if you're lucky. Um, so when it's hot, it's a very different experience, screwed. You just have to be, you have to slow down. You have to be more in control, listen to your body more. Um, and that, that, that 10 miles from mile 30 to 40 coming into Dresden, I did get a bit overcooked. And the amazing thing to me was I actually caught Greg coming into Dresden, um, having a bad day, he was not dealing well with the heat. And I, I thought my race with Greg is not going to start for another day or two, but, um, he wasn't having a great race. Um, Dresden, I planned to stop for a while at the farmer's market for like an hour or two, but it was, uh, I missed the farmer's market <laughs> and that sucked because I was out of water. You ran right by it or, or you? Well, it's like a little bit off the course, I guess. And you have to know, you know, I thought I had looked carefully at the maps to know where it was, but I missed it. Yeah. Um, so leaving town, I had to, um, you know, make a desperate plea to a woman in front of her house to get some water from her hose. And hmm. um, that saved me. Wow. So that was enough to get me to uh, Gleason, mile, mile 48. And um, I took my nap there, which was actually in hindsight, this was sort of a... a repeating recurring pattern in this race, things that seemed like they went, you know, might be disasters and went wrong. Like, oh my God, I'm leaving this town and I'm super hot and I have no water because I missed my stop. That sucks. <laughs> well, turns out I stopped in Gleason instead. And the Gleason fire department is one of these established road angel stations that is just mm -hmm. fabulous. They've got everything and they have got like super cushy air mattresses and fans and pizza and anything you want to eat or drink. And, um, you know, recharge my electronics. They pulled an extension cord up so that I didn't, you know, I could use my phone for an alarm and still charge it. Um, <laughs> and um, I was definitely overcooked. In fact, I was actually a, a little bit hyponatremic, I think, coming in. I'd noticed my fingers were swollen. I hadn't peed oh. all day. And mm -hmm. those are not, not good signs. So um, I needed that downtime. And fortunately, I had planned to ha take that downtime. So I didn't sweat it. I just crashed for, I set my alarm for an hour, took a nap and geared, you know, geared down, took my nap, geared back up. I was mm -hmm. cramping, everything was cramping as I lay down and my body was definitely not, you know, I thought that I'd started conservatively, but the day was definitely cooking me. So mm -hmm. I got a really great recharge there. 
I had arrived in, in second place. And by the time I left, I was like in eighth place or something. But um, that was fine because I was heading into the evening and my body felt great. And um, so at the 12, so at the thing about Vol State is um, you check in every 12 hours and report your position, where you are, how many miles you are along the course. And so we ought, that's, those 12 hours are when you get to see where everybody else is. So um, first 12 hour check-in, I was at like 55 miles, I think. And then the leaders were at 58 and they were like, I think seven of us spread out over those three miles. So pretty, still pretty tight brunch up front. Mm-hmm. And um, the next 12 hours is where um, I really started to open it up. I think it, um, we had some thunderstorms that evening, which I just thoroughly enjoyed and ran through. And it was, it was um, pretty substantial weather, an amazing light show, just continuous lightning in every direction. Um, nothing, you know, no really close strikes. So I didn't really feel like I was that much in danger, but I think a lot of people took shelter, maybe, maybe preemptively um, because uh, yeah, I was by the 24 hour check-in, I was 12 miles ahead of everybody else. Um, wow. So, I don't know, you know, the, I, as, as we said at the beginning, I did a podcast a few weeks ago when I went through the, the race in a fair amount of detail. So I don't, mm-hmm. let's not just sort of redo that. Let's yeah, think no, about yeah. other, other aspects to talk about. Um, I don't know. What, what no, do you think? I think? Yeah. So one thing um, for sure, I think managing your system for three days in this mm-hmm. setting is mm-hmm. part of what you were trying to balance right all the time, which is yes. sleep, eat, drink, run, go to the bathroom, all of these things that have to sort of harmonize because yes. many of them gets off. Like you said, you know, you were starting to cramp or you're starting to swell. That's a trigger. Yep. Something's triggering that. So, yep. <clears throat> and then I would imagine as you go through our ability to manage this decreases because our sort of our perceptions of what's going on get challenged. Yes. As any of us have done a multi-day, it could be hallucinations all the way to falling asleep while we're moving. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about what was the approach, you know, so 24 hours for, for Bob Hearn, not a big problem, but it's probably 90 plus degrees. You got a lot still to go. You're running through the rain. Now your system is starting to get challenged. What were some of the signals or what were you doing to try and stay ahead of those problems that could develop? I was really just um, listening to my body. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I write these really long race reports. I'm still working on my race report, but this one is going to be called walking the fine line because mm-hmm. that's really what this entire race was is instead of focusing on my target splits for the next town or whatever, I was focusing on keeping my body where I thought it needed to be. And I could calibrate that based on last year's experience. It wasn't just a total, you know, run by feel. I could, it was sort of run by feel plus experience and, and knowledge. Um, you know, the, the most challenging parts were the night times because running through the night, especially running through the second night or, or more is, has always been really hard for me. I, I've, I've always said that my biggest problem my biggest challenge as a multi-day runner is my um, is uh, sleep deprivation. I really mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. handle that well. And that was one of the more amazing things this race is that I really nailed that. Um, I was convinced that I needed, you know, more sleep than typical multi-day runners. And this mm-hmm. race, um, I really didn't get it. Now I did get, I did get my afternoon naps. You know, I stopped for an hour and a half the first day. Um, the second and third day I stopped at hotels for three hours each day. Um, but the nights I basically ran through, I took a half hour nap the first night, second night I ran completely through. And the third night I took a five minute nap. And that's, um, if you had asked me before the race, I would have said, Nope, that's not possible for me. I need some downtime at night. Um, and somehow I was able to get over that. Some of that I think is just the different mindset that you have running screwed. You know, last year 
I had this crew van I'd see every few miles and it's air conditioned. And it's like, well, I, I knew I was going to need some naps. So, okay, let's, let's go down for half an hour. Let's go down for an hour in this air conditioned van. And, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I think I might be starting to weave and hallucinate a little bit. So maybe, you know, it's time for another nap and didn't really have that option this time. And I was more forced to be honest with my actual capabilities and, um, realized that, you know, maybe I just had some mental hangups there that I was now able to, to get over, or maybe I just had more experience, or maybe I was just listening to my body better and pacing myself better. But for whatever reason, um, the whole experience this time, I was more writing that line of what was sustainable and what I was capable of than writing a line of what are my expectations and what are my goals. Hmm. When I think, Bob, you know, man, maybe just you know, your course record, your you know, three days and, and four hours and nine minutes all began a couple months before, you know, Volstate even happened when you said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go uh, screwed in, in, instead of crude. Um, you know, I think there's, there's a very real thing in ultra running where we don't really trust ourselves. And we, we, you know, we, we like to rely upon others and we like to think that we can't find those solutions for ourselves. But you know, maybe, you know, Bob, maybe we can speak to this a little bit more about the, the spiritual journey over the last number of years and last many months, and maybe really what this race is, has meant to you. Because, you know, I guarantee, and we're going to go there further, because I, I, I know your your spiritual um, transcendence that, that ended up happening throughout the, this race, especially in the last, you know, many hours of, of, of the event. But, you know, is this something that, you know, do you feel really this, this happened to you? You chose this at this time in your life in order to, to really grow exponentially as a spiritual person. Yeah, certainly this is a part of that process. It's been going on for um, a few years now. I've uh, made a lot of changes in my life. I'm doing a lot of meditating, um, trying to open up new perspectives on life, um, especially after that experience of Allstate last year. Purely in terms of racing, um, you know, for quite a while now, I've been trying to make an effort to more um, run with joy, I guess I would say, because, you know, I'm, I'm known as this very analytical guy who plans out everything and executes a lot of the times according to my plan. Yeah. Um, that's one way to do it. But you look at the people who are the best, you know, look at Giannis Kuros, you know, right. he runs with joy. He runs with a movie playing in his head of his family, of people he loves, of things that make him happy. Um, he doesn't look at his splits like, like I typically do. Um, Marissa Lysak is another person I would say that does that. I, it's been very interesting watching her record setting performances, you know, last October, both of us ran um, 48 hour at the three days of the fair. And um, I had a great, well, little short of my goals, but I had a pretty good race, 240 miles. It was, I, I improved my own age group American record. And uh, Marissa ran 243 something and broke the overall American record. And our approaches could not have been more different. You know, I had everything planned down to when I was going to stop and how long I was going to stop and my run walk, you know, ratio and stuff. She was just out there running with joy. And mm -hmm. it, it's, that was kind of an eye-opening comparison for me because, you know, I knew that about Kuros, but to see it so firsthand, um, that was something. And I've tried to bring that to my races, but it's really hard for me to get over my habits and you know frankly what i see is my strength at these kinds of races is, is my analytical side um this this race was certainly a breakthrough and i won't say that i threw my analytical side out the window it was there mm -hmm. it was running the whole time sort of in the background but that wasn't the priority the priority was the the more listening to my body living in the moment enjoying the experience um trying to soak it all in you have to sort of let go, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. In that, then we find something that we wasn't there because when we use the, we'll call it, you know, 
the right brain, we're not finding the same answer as we find in the left brain and, or get out of our amygdala. You know, it's like, there's a lot yeah. of parts of it that are actually, something's really happening. It's not just us saying, oh, you know, lose yourself. It's actually signaling to the brain in our system to open up a different set of senses. They, yep. Like, so uh, I, absolutely. And I think you could talk about that a little bit, but I'll just, that my prefacing is that this, like sometimes when we say, okay, we're finding something, we don't know how to explain like why we found it, you know, or like, yeah. why did we feel different? Now you've done this a couple of times. And now I think what, you, at least my understanding is that you're finding the process to get there, which is what I think the Buddhist way will treat, teach and some of the other sort of more sort of thoughtful mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Approaches, right. Tell us, mm-hmm. let's talk about that for a second. Well, I don't, I'm not sure I really know where to go with that. I mean, I agree with what you just said. Well, do you um, think, okay. So, so, all right. You're running, of course, that's part of this whole thing. And then you hit it's pouring rain. Someone yeah. could say, well, this is terrible. You're saying, Ooh, this is really good. You are yeah. going to, you're setting out yourself with these nighttime goals and you're start to, reframe some of what's been in your way before Mm -hmm. Uh, and so in those moments why do you think you know you were feeling more positive than some other times when those things become sort of like those are the obstacles they sound like the enablers this time it's it's really hard to say i mean um part of me feels like all of my running for the last several years has been building up to this. This is, was just where it all sort of came together. And I was able to take a step back and not, you know, have so much anxiety or rigid structure. And um, it, it, it also, you know, a lot of things just sort of broke my way. It felt like, mm. you know, I, I had um a lot of decisions to make both before the race and during the race about gear, about where to stop, about all these different things. And you never know what's the right decision. Do I bring this? Do I bring that? Is that too heavy? Is that too light? Am I going to regret not bringing this? Am I going to regret, you know, not stopping here for water? Seemed like all those decisions, they just broke the right way. There's, Mm. there's a certain amount of, of luck and the weather you know, it has to be said, uh, the weather was definitely cooler this year. Now, a lot of people who ran this race will tell you the weather sucked because there were a lot of thunderstorms. Um, and there was, there was a fair amount of heat as well, but, um, the weather broke my way, I think, you know, on the whole, um, all the decisions that I made, um, you know, doing my homework paid off. Um, I, I probably got a little bit lucky on the way that some of the things broke, but, you know, you got to be in a position to take advantage of that. And I was because I had prepared adequately for this race this time. Um, the experience goes a long way. Now, I, I, and I should say that, you know, th- this sort of spiritual unlocking or whatever you want to call it from this race, I think, you know, that's not something special about me and this, and this, this record. I'm a little bit of a hard nut to crack, I think, there. I think most people reach these things um, much earlier than uh, 314 miles of running. Um, but the people who do Vol State, you know, everybody gets this. In fact, the people in yeah. the back get it, I'm sure, more than I do. There are people out there three times as long as I was. And they're suffering through a lot more than I suffered through. They're digging much deeper into their soul than I had to dig. And they're, you know, reaping commensurately greater rewards. So, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's important to uh, pick the brains of those people as well and, and hear about their, their journeys. Well, I, and I agree, Bob. I, and, you know, you were out there working hard for three days and there were people out there working hard for six days or, or nine days in whatever their physical capacity mm-hmm. was to, to achieve that goal. And so you brought up a really interesting point about, you know, the average Volstater is out there trying to find some 
don't know, self-transcendence or, you know, some enlightenment with, with doing what they're doing. And, and, and we're going to get to that of, of, you know, kind of how you felt at the end and, 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 and the, the days after, after the race, because I've, I've had moments like that as well, too. I've always wondered, you know, what is exactly going on? Um, why, you know, yeah, Bob, yeah, exactly. Why do you have to run 500 kilometers or 300 plus miles in order to, to, to unlock that? Do you, you know, is it really that difficult to calm the brain and to quiet everything else so that you can, instead of feeling, um, you know, the ego and the importance of myself in the moment, instead of it's, it's, it's the, it's that I'm, I'm one with the road. I'm one with nature. I'm, I'm just here one foot in front of the other and breathing the air um did you do you really feel do you, do you feel like like i do that maybe we need to go and exhaust ourselves uh wholly in order to find uh that 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 sense of enlightenment well that's that's one way to do this to to, to do it um you know i think that's there's the path of meditation right that you can argue that the entire point of that sort of, um, you know, meditative lifestyle is to learn to calm your mind. Um, it's, it's made harder by the world we live in today. This is not the world we were evolved to live in, you know, um, look at hunter gatherer societies. It's they, they don't have to run 300 miles to do this, that they're living their life and connected with nature and in ways that most of us are not. So most of us, you know, in today's world do need something extraordinary because we don't live connected with nature. We don't um, devote our lives to mindfulness meditation. Um, you know, ex very experienced meditators, no, they don't have to do this. But the rest of us, the rest of us, this is, this is a way to get there. Yeah, to, to just, um, you know, when, if, if you look at it in terms of the neuroscience, um, and I don't know if this is exactly what's happening, but it, this is what makes sense to me, is uh, in, in your brain, there's this thing called the default mode network, um, which is this set of brain regions that talk to each other in certain ways and, and sort of control various high level brain processes. And um, among other things, affect the way that information is processed and, and sort of bubbles up into consciousness. And they sort of, you know, the default mode network sort of keeps us on the straight and narrow. It's the thing that, um, you know, it lets our mind wander. It lets our mind think about the future and the past, um, but it doesn't focus so much on just the now and absorbing everything that is in the present. Because in order to get by in the world, you know, in an evolutionary sense, we got to plan for tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is something that you know experienced meditators can learn to damp down you can see that in brain scans um, my feeling is that probably that's what happens in this type of race you just you exhaust you, you're not just learning to damp it down like you do in meditation this is something that you're just abusing <laughs> you're, you're using your mind you know for days on end to try to control things and it just gets tired of that control and relaxes and gives up and opens up these new emotional, mental, spiritual states that are normally closed down. So it's, it's, it's one way to achieve that. Yeah, not necessarily the best way, but in today's world, for those of us who are not devoting ourselves to a, a monk-like lifestyle, then um, yeah, this is a way. But there's a, there is a journey that they take to a dedication of their life to be able to achieve that. It's not like I could become a monk tomorrow and in four weeks because I follow right. their practices. It's, it That's is right. that, that repeated sort of myelination in the brain that allows for this the same way. You've been at this for a while. I know it's not been a hundred years, but for years now. And yep. so you're developing that skill. It shows itself through this stimulation that you're putting yourself through. I think, and I can't, words in anyone's mouth but my feeling is that when you and i'd love to talk about sort of at the end like what this last 10 miles felt like but you proved to yourself that you're worthy now like this was the breakthrough for you all this other yeah. stuff has been sort of 
is Bob worth anything to Bob? Not the world. Like it was no, nothing else mattered. It wasn't about winning. This was about yep. Bob. When you say you had the perfect race, that was because you delivered on that. And so now that is extremely satisfying. That's why we can get to this sort of transcendent state. Because before that, we're fighting ourselves and our perception of who we could or should be. And it's been influenced by many outside sources that are, you know, sort of either supporting or not supporting us. And so we, you shed all of that, like that didn't exist. And so in some way, we all have that opportunity if we can find that chance to do that. And that the style to get there, we don't need to discuss as much as when it happens, take it and sort of appreciate that moment because I don't think it ever turns back though. That's the piece that I think you're now at a different level for the rest of what you're going to do because you found, we'll call it found Bob on this race. <laughs> That's, I don't know yeah. if you feel that yeah. way, but I certainly I, do. I do. Um, and I don't know whether that means I have stepped up to another level or whether it means that I have had my one perfect race of my life, but it is, you know, I've had a lot of good races. I've set a lot of records and I've won races, but um, nothing compares to this. There's, there's always something that, Oh, if I only, you know, I've gone an extra half mile, I'd have made the 24 hour team. Or if I'd only done this, if I'd only done that, then I would have really had my breakthrough and accomplished something. And this time there's no if, ands or buts. I, smashed through everything I could have imagined. And um, it's definitely uh, a different experience. And it mm -hmm. means that I'm now a, a different person as, as a runner and maybe more broadly. Um, I'm, I'm in a different place. I don't know what that place is going to be like. Um, maybe this will give me more confidence and, you know, unlock the, the you know, sort of spiritual approach that I used this time for future races. And um, I don't know, I don't know, but it's, I'm definitely in a different place now. Yeah. But I think that's, that, that says a lot, Bob. Um, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful things about Lazarus Lake and let, let's talk about him in, in, you know, yeah. in a second, yeah. but you know, you know, he, he's created an event um, you know, he, he's, you know, the Barkley marathons or, or, or bigs or, or Volstate where, you know, he creates these opportunities where people find, their greatness and yes. mm -hmm. you know what's interesting is if you were to run a marathon bob you know you would have a measure of what a good marathon time would be it's probably a boston marathon standard time or it's you know so there, there's a measure mm -hmm. there yeah and you would say i'm either a success or i'm a failure based upon that measure um but what i'm hearing from you bob is that you you know you created your own measure and you you succeeded in, in every way imaginable and therefore, at the end of the race, you know, I could believe you, you ran three days and four hours and nine minutes. I don't know if that really even matters to you anymore. It's just that you were enough that day. And, um, and isn't that the greatest gift that another human being can give somebody else? So let's talk about Laz for a second, because he's giving yes. so many gifts like yes. that. Mm -hmm. running community so so have you when did you run your very first Lazarus Lake event? Uh, that was Vol State last year, actually. Mm -hmm. And I, I had wanted to for quite a while, but it, you know, I followed a lot of his races, but it just never really worked out until, until Vol State last year. Um, yeah, he's, he's just amazing. You know, one of the, um, take a step back, that on the third, the third night was really the most interesting part of this race for me. And there was this one stretch going up this climb to Monteagle that's about a thousand feet over three miles. And um, that was for me sort of the emotional, spiritual crux of this race and where I had sort of the most insights flooding in. And one of the things that went through my mind was thinking about Laz and this, and this race, it was that, you know, he's not, Laz is not a race director. He's an artist, he's a poet, and uh, the races are just his medium, and the runners are like his paints, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, we're his raw materials, and he, he brings out all of this, um, these wonderful stories. Um, mm -hmm. And I was talking to him after the race about this, and he says, well, you know, really, 
I do these races because I want to enable people to find, you know, greatness within themselves, find parts of themselves, just like, just like you were saying, you know, not, not exactly like the insight that I was having, but he, um, he really does that. And he, not only that, he's just the world's best storyteller, you know, his Vol State every 12 hours, he has an update, you know, during the backyard, every hour he'll have an update. And he, you know, the raw performances are there, but he really brings the actual stories to life in his writings. And that's, that's just incredible as well. Yeah. And I think you said, um, I wasn't very happy with him on those last few hills and the road was <laughs> yeah. pretty crummy. And I think they, you know, he's doing that, right. Because he needs that one last pull of the string to really, you know, because like, we want it to be easy. Why do we want it to be easy? You know, like, what are yep. we running from that we need it to be yep. easy? You've gone 300 some odd miles. You're already like out yep. there. Yep. And, but it doesn't give you the easy end. And then that's what really gets to be so satisfying because you beat down that yep. sort of demon. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, those last... Um, 11 miles, I guess, from when I crossed the blue bridge to the finish that uh, I was just thinking this is a victory lap because I had already, I was already well ahead of the course record. And it was sort of just a matter of running it in. And I was almost thinking, well, you know, last year I was chasing Francesca the whole way and I pushed really hard at the end. And I don't really have that motivation this time. You know, I might just sort of be pretty lackadaisical coming in and ho-hum, get you know, sit in the throne and get my, you know, get my record um, didn't didn't pan out that way um, and I don't know you know the last the last few miles there is this big climb another thousand feet over three miles and then there's some rough few miles of rough road after that and I don't you can say oh Laz stuck that at the end just just to sort of yank your chain or whatever or pull that last bit of effort out of you I don't know I mean he wanted that it, it took some effort to get this course lined up to where it actually finishes in the northwest corner of uh, Georgia. And, and maybe that's just how it wound up. I, I don't know. But um, certainly when I was running it, yeah, I was angry with Lass for no good reason. I was dehydrated, out of water. And so why did you put these hills here at the end? You're just so mean. And that was just not rational. That mm. was just, uh, but, you know, I did discover that um, I was able to push through all of that. I was working hard towards the end. I ran hard to the finish. I didn't just, I didn't just phone it in. Yeah. And, you know, Bob, one of my own experience I had with Laz, I've only run one of his races and that was in 2019 at Pigs. And, you know, I remember 45, 46 hours in, um, there were only, I think four runners, five runners left in, in the race. And I was one of them. And, you know, I would come in off of a lap and I would go and sit in my chair. And I, I, I noticed that he was, he was watching. And everybody else was busy walking around and doing things, but he would sit there with yep. a cigarette right across from my tent and, and he would he would just stare at me. You know, he was almost <laughs> staring into my soul and he would smoke yep. a cigarette and I would put my my things over my eyes and my earphones and I would go back and I would fall asleep and then my crew would wake me up with two minutes left to go, wakey, wakey, Dave. And and I would look, but I would, I would look up and he didn't move and he was watching. Yep. And, you know, I was so angry with him and I was thinking I wanted to flip him the bird or something, tell him, you know, <laughs> know old man or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I think the thing is, is that he is a true poet and he's he's paying attention and he's seeing he, he's paying attention to things that maybe, Bob, you and I don't see. Um, yeah. and, and it's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And I, I, I got thinking about that for weeks. So you know, one question I have for you is. You know, you got, you know, you got hailed uh, King Bob. Um, you were there at the finish line, you know, three days, you know, four hours, nine minutes later. What did Laz say? What did he, did he look at you with a certain look? Did he say, hey, good work, kid? Did he, he put his hand on your back? Did he, did he say he was proud of you? Did he, was there anything that you, and you, if you, if you don't want to, if it's too personal, we understand, but is there anything that you want to share because I, I, I think that there's something very special about that man and, and the things that he unlocks in, in runners like you and me. Well, really throughout the race, um, he'd, be, he'd been giving me a lot of praise. You know, I wasn't, 
you know, the, every 12 hours you check in and then an hour or so later or a few hours later, he'll write his update. And, you know, at the end of the first 24 hours, I was well ahead and already, you know, I wasn't reading these updates, but I was talking to my wife on the phone and she was reading me some of the highlights and already he was, you know, oh, well, you know, Bob is in control of this race and so forth. And as the race wore on and I pulled farther and farther ahead, his, the things that he was saying became more and more sort of over the top congratulatory, mm. you know, and, and I won't repeat some of them here because there would just be too much self flattery, but um, <laughs> it was, it was motivating, you know, to hear yeah. Liz read these things to me that Laz was saying about me. It's like, wow, Laz really, really thinks a lot of me. And he was clearly blown away by my performance. Yeah. And he was, full of superlatives in the way that only he can express them. Um, when I actually finished the race, I can't, I can't say that I remember exactly what he said. I was pretty out of it then. And I really, really wanted water. I touched the rock yeah. and I sat down on the throne and I said, I need water. And he's like, um, do I have any water? Uh, well, because there's nothing set up up there. Yeah. You know, later in the race, they have a whole setup there with lots of tents and chairs and coolers and things. And But I was the first guy there, so nothing was set up yet. It was just Laz and a chair, and that was it. Um, but he did find a half bottle of water in his car to give me, so I didn't die. Um, I think uh, maybe I had to throw something out there just for consideration around this idea of transcendence. Um, <clears throat> you know, from when we're really little kids, you know, what we just want is to, you know, get approval from our parents. Mm -hmm. We go along in life, we just want approval from people we work with, our spouse, mm -hmm. our non-spouse, our the world we live in. We just want them to just continue to validate us. <clears throat> I think transcendence is when you get approval from yourself mm. the same yeah. way that you were looking yeah. for mm -hmm. from everyone else. And we don't give that to ourselves. We're yeah. still like it, this struggle, like this, this conflict between why do we need from one other versus what we should do for us. And <clears throat> that in fact, that's what happened for you over the past couple of years, you're starting to give yourself permission to not yeah. need that. Now, oh, it's still great to hear. Let's be clear. Yeah. It's fun. Like, we love that. That's not like you don't want that. But mm -hmm. it isn't the driver anymore. And right. I don't right. know what your magical races are in the future, but your life will be magical. And that's the difference, mm -hmm. that you don't have to have that as the mechanism, because yep. Bob yeah. has the mechanism now to play that out. And I think yeah. that that's... The journey that all of us can be on, regardless of whether we're ultra runners or not. I mean, we have people listening to the podcast who are not ultra runners. And you just have to find that way yourself to find out what would be legitimate the way you think about yourself. And here, you know, you are analytical as good as any of the runners we know. And you played that out in your head enough times. You're like, oh, you know what? I tried every algorithm. They all worked. There's nothing that I should say. Oof. Like, you know, and that's what you sometimes did. So it all worked. That's why, you know, the mystery became magical, which then turns into this wonderful experience. Anyway, that's who I feel listening to you. So. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's beautiful stuff. And, and so, you know, Bob, I, 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 I want to thank you. Um, Again, you know, your number you for your first repeat guest. Um, oh wow! And well, this you. is what this <laughs> is what happens when you go out and, and win and dominate the sport, and as well too, you know, become you know somebody that I we both me and Joe really think um, the world can learn about uh, a lot about uh, themselves through the the learnings of of you, Bob Hearn. Well, thank you. Um, and we always you know finish off our our, our podcast with asking our chasing tomorrow you know question you know i think the last time we talked we, we probably spoke about vol state and in your chasing yeah. tomorrow so yeah you know, self-transcendence um in the finding oneself the enlightenment you no know, i don't know i don't know if there's any one better time to ask somebody you know what's 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 tomorrow for you then then you know then on just on the heels of of of, of winning an event like like vol state um what's next for bob Hearn? 
Well, in a lot of ways, what's next is a blank slate. So that's mm. exciting. I've never been where I am now before. Um, I'm going to try to learn what I can from this experience and carry it forward. Um, to be concrete, I do have other races coming up. I've got Spartathlon coming up at the end of September that I'm really excited about. Um, hopefully that will actually happen this year. Right. Um, yeah, things are not looking good in Greece right now, but I'm still, I'm still optimistic about that. Uh, I'm signed up for Desert Solstice again, and I'm not quite sure what my goals are going to be there. Um, I'm looking to six day, honestly, as my next big, um, you know, thing to chase in terms of running accomplishments. I've, I've had two attempts and the second one was pretty solid, but I think I've reached a level in Vol State where I've become a much more accomplished multi-day runner. And I think that um, I, can, I can do a lot more at six days. So I'm gonna to try to go back to um, EMU in Hungary next May. And um, so that's what my next few races look like anyway. And we'll see, um, we'll see how they play out. Well, best of luck, Bob. Congrats. Thanks for spending some time with us and um, best of uh, luck with this new blank slate. Yeah, thank you. All hail uh, King Bob. <laughs>Hey Dave, when we started on this journey, I wasn't exactly sure what we would find out. I figured it would be amazing people talking about amazing results, and for sure that's what Bob delivered on at Vol State. What I didn't expect is we'd be touching on topics like transcendence and purpose, and a broad view of why we're here on the planet. I mean, it's just amazing to be in the middle of these conversations, and I love it that Bob has taken his game to a whole new level. I mean, winning and so much more, and since he's our first repeat guest, I think he set the bar for what a repeat guest would be like. Hmm, just awesome, really. Um, okay, then there you have it. That's a wrap for this week. As always, a big shout-out to our sponsor, Performance Tea. You can find them on www.performancetea.com, and they've given us a discount code for our listeners to get 20% off their purchase. Just use the Chasing20 discount code at checkout. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could follow us on Instagram and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome. And as always, a huge thanks to our listeners for coming with us on this journey and chasing tomorrow with us. Thanks.